Hello everyone and welcome to the Manacast. And if you're listening to this near the time it goes out, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. My name is Jacob Garrett and with me as always is Jonathan Cornford. G'day folks. Sorry it's been a little while folks listening. Uh, we had a few bumps in the road of our recording schedule. John, you were away for a bit and you also had a voice problem, voice troubles? Uh, yeah, um, I had, um, I, I pulled a throat hammy, as oh how I understand it, strained a muscle in my my um, throat singing, of all things. Yeah, so I, my doctor warned me off doing too much speaking, which is very difficult to mm. try and minimise your speaking. But anyway, um, it's starting to get better, but I'll try not to clear my throat too much as we talk. Are you back to singing or just talking? Very cautiously, just starting to to have a go again. Yeah, dang. Well, we hope it clears up soon. Thankfully, we're back on the Manacast, which, if you don't know, Manacast is the podcast of the organization called Managum. The goal of Managum is to do our best to envision a form of life that's truly good news for us, for our neighbors, and for the world. What this means in practice is we spend most of our time talking about the intersection of Christian faith, ecology, and economics, but we also cover topics that might not always seem to be exactly those things. Today we've got more of a history focus. Why do we talk about history, John? Oh, well, um, I mean, if we're going to talk about what Christianity has to say around ecology and economics, we have to talk about history because a lot of what... Uh, Christianity has said about these things through time is uh, the subject of history. <laughs> we have to understand uh, all the... Uh, so we've got 2,000 years of Christian history of thinking about this sort of stuff and with a huge variety of colours uh, and different ideas. Uh, and so uh, today we're thinking, looking at one of those, uh, Catholic social thinking, uh, which is part of a... a a large area, um, which covers, which, as we'll see, really gets into e ecology and economics and all that stuff. Mm. And of course, the lands that we're speaking from have a rich history that goes far beyond uh, recent settlement. So we want to acknowledge that we're talking on lands that are traditionally owned. Mine are traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people. And did you know, John, I learned recently that Wurundjeri in Woiwurrung, which is spoken by the Wurundjeri people, Warun actually means Matagum. <laughs> I did know that, yes. And Jerry is the little grub that's often found in the Matagum tree. So we could be talking about the Warren cast. Yes, um, that was one of the reasons we uh, chose Matagum originally. So I was, when Matagum started, I was living on Warunjeri land, uh, the land of the Matagum and the grub. Uh, there you go. Yeah. And where are you speaking from today? Uh, and I'm speaking to you now from uh, the land of the Jajarung people in Bendigo, Central Victoria. And I've got, even though we're in early January, I currently am wearing a jumper. Uh, <laughs> and it's been cold here even. And two days ago, it was 37 degrees, stinking hot. It's just these crazy summer weather cycles yeah, uh, yeah. coming through. It's back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Uh, we want to acknowledge these peoples as the traditional custodians of these lands, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. As Jonathan said, we're talking today mostly about Catholic social teaching, but that might seem a bit weird given that neither of us are actually Catholic. So, Jonathan, what is Catholic social teaching? Why are we talking about it? 
um, well, why are we talking about it? Uh, uh, I, I guess I s said something about that already. Um, perhaps m even more more broadly speaking, uh, I think I mean one of the things we're concerned to do uh, in Manigam's work and through these podcasts is really get a sense of the breadth and depth of the richness of the Christian gospel. And to do that means we need to go beyond the little traditions that we come from. So if you're a Christian, uh, listening to this, uh, then uh, the 99 out of 100 people will come will be a Christian that coming from one or two particular traditions that have influenced them. And very often, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people think about Christianity in, entirely in the terms that it's been framed in the tradition that they've come from. Um, and they're often that's uh, uh, narrows it down to what, what the because essentially what's happened through history is the fragmentation of the church has led to a, a fragmentation of versions of the gospel. Mm. And if we really want to get a sense of the breadth of the gospel, we have to look beyond our own traditions and uh, and go and find the riches that are contained within other traditions. Uh, and uh, I think what we're going to talk about today, Catholic social teaching, is a great example of that. There's real riches to be found within the Catholic tradition, which most Protestants are unaware of. And even, um, I'm shocked to say, some Catholics are unaware of as well. Mm. And it, it should be said that we'll do our best to talk truthfully about Catholic social teaching. But of course, we come from a non-Catholic perspective. Uh, so apologies to any Catholic listeners who are familiar with what we're talking about far more than we are. And if we goof, let us know. Yeah. And, and look, it's worth saying this is really going to, I mean, this podcast is pitched at people who don't uh, really know a thing about it and it's really an introduction to it so we're really not going to do uh, the breadth of the field justice uh, it's really uh, a first step to finding out about it that's right we're just dipping our toe in uh, this stuff so hopefully you get something out of it uh, that's how it relates to Christian faith I suppose but how does CST Catholic social teaching relate to ecology economics well, it is, I mean, really the heartland of Catholic social teaching and Catholic social thought more generally. Um, it really began with thinking about economics, uh, the, what we mean by when we think about modern Catholic social teaching. We'll get into that in a moment. But um, uh, it was really uh, an intervention into the economic controversies of the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, and all the debates around capitalism and socialism, that sort of stuff. So it's fundamentally about economics, uh, right uh, in the, the, the meat of what it has to talk about. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of the thrusts of Manigam is that economics and ecology are integrally related. So hopefully we'll get into that. But first of all, we need to start way before the 18th and 19th centuries, because the Catholic Church has quite a long history. Uh, and... Therefore, Catholic social teaching, even if it hasn't always been called that, has quite a long history. So we were trying to figure out where to begin this discussion. We decided on the European medieval period, even that's quite broad. Uh, but why should we begin there, John? Yeah, I mean, really what we're, it's worth, we begin with um, what's generally called Christendom, the um, thousand plus year uh, period in which Europe was essentially a Christian whole, um, so bounded by a single church, uh, European 
uh, the various um, nations and kingdoms and principalities throughout Europe were all came under the same church and uh, pronounced commitment to the same faith, um, which is uh, a remarkable period. And we uh, generally don't think very well or much about that period and, and how much that's contributed to our own times. Uh, well, doing doing history myself at school and uni, uh, lecturers are often at pains to tell us it wasn't a dark age. We need to recover our sense of dark age. And we've got these very negative associations, I think, in the European medieval period. Yeah, we do. And, you know, probably for a lot of people, I mean, we, we live in a in a society where people don't have much awareness of history full stop. And, mm. you know, perhaps people's uh, main pictures of medieval society come from Monty Python and the Holy Grail or something <laughs> like that. It's you all know, dirt uh, and torture and violence. Yeah. And... Bring out your dead. Yeah, yeah. plagues. That sort of stuff, <laughs> which is, you know, not probably, you know, as much as I love Monty Python, probably not the best place to take your, <laughs> your historical pictures from. Yeah. Um. So, look, it's, uh, Christendom was an amazing time full of uh, uh, hugely uh, flawed approaches to Christianity. Uh, we probably need to do a podcast just on Christendom, actually, as as I think about this. I'd love that. Um, but uh, so lots of uh, major uh, flaws in the church and people, if you, you know something about the medieval period and religion, you're probably that's probably your main sense of how corrupt the church was. And that, that was true, but that was that's only half the story or maybe even less than half the story uh, because of this whole other side of, of a wealth of uh, both thought and action that went on in, within Christianity during that period as well, which we generally hasn't been remembered very well. And that has lot, a lot to do with our post-Christian secularizing, for, secularizing form of history that sort of treats everything but before the Enlightenment and even before the Reformation as sort of superstitious darkness, mm. you know, um, and that's not what it was like at all. But anyway, um, so, so we're talking too much about, um, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we need to move on. But so, um, so the whole Christendom experience uh, was one in which the, the church uh, did a lot of thinking about economics and society and politics and all of that sort of stuff. And as you say, it could do so from, more or less a shared base of Christian faith, even if the cultures differed across Europe. Uh, there was quite a lot of equal buy-in by many cultures, many societies. Yeah, and if you think about it, um, one, the, one way of thinking about it is, it is, is once you have a whole series, you know, all these kings and rulers and princes who e effectively have bowed their knee to a higher ruler, to Christ, and so they're all essentially saying, uh, we submit to Christ, uh, then you have the opportunity, at least in theory, it didn't always work in practice, but this did go on in theory to think of, well, what then would it mean to shape civilization along the lines of the gospel? What would it mean to create a Christian civilization? That's the, that is really that the heart of the whole Christendom experiment, this idea of um, creating a Christian civilization. And, we can get it. We won't go into its flaws. Well, let's save that for another podcast. But but uh, here at least we can th try and get a sense of the the way they tried to think about that in some of their best thoughts that they had. Mm. And so naturally, that kind of reaches into every area of society. Uh, it's not just law 
and it's not just philosophy and it's not just theology but it's all those things and more right that exactly so really they're th thinking about society as a whole in all its many different bits and its uh various components and and right at the heart of the medieval conception of society which is something at the heart of catholic social thinking is the idea of society as a social organism not as these uh separate fragments uh of you know of competing interests uh that we get through modern sociology but actually the view of society it, it's really uh the picture of the body that we get in in 1 Corinthians 3 that when Paul writes of the Christian body uh as uh, constituted of diverse members that all work to the same uh, common will and purpose. And so basically they take that idea of the body, which is the church, and apply it to society. This idea of that society it, uh, can and should be made up of all these diverse elements, each with their different role and different function, but all serving the same purpose and that's this huge idea that of the common good that there is such a thing of a good that we all participate in and that we all benefit from and that we can all direct our actions towards mm. and when you put it that way i think it's quite beautiful like we i think we tend to think of society as a collection of individuals that have to stick together but really it's for our own ends rather than a whole society that is working toward a common vision through its diversity. Everyone is playing a different role, but they're all working toward the same goal. Exactly. And and I, that's, that's an idea that's entirely fallen out of favor in uh, since the Enlightenment, the idea of the common good. And, and that's because, so one of the underpinning ideas of the common good is what in philosophy is talked about as teleology. Um, which really means the idea of purpose, uh, this idea that everything is created with a purpose or should have a purpose. Uh, and the, the, so then the, the goal of theology and philosophy, what, and this is what the medieval philosophers and theologians talked about as natural law, the goal of thinking about these things is to, uh, uh, is to try and understand the purpose of everything. So if you're thinking about uh, commerce, you ask uh, not just how does it happen, what does it do, but what's the purpose of it? If you're thinking about um, agriculture or production, you're thinking not just about how to do it, uh, get highest productivity or most profit, it's what's the purpose of it. If you're thinking about uh, the place of the church or the role of rulers, uh, then it, the, the question is what is the perp what's their purpose uh, within the social organism and towards the, uh, the higher social purpose that, and this, uh, un, underpinned the whole art is that everything finds its true purpose in Christ. Hmm. Yeah, and so hopefully we begin to see it has very practical uh, outworkings. It's not just this kind of high-minded ivory tower way of doing sociology or theology or something, but it, it at least theoretically and sometimes more than other times in some places more than other places had real-world effects on limits people put in law to how they treat each other, how they treat property, how they treat agriculture, whatever it is, in a way that's very foreign to how we think. Yeah, totally. So that led really theologians, we, they were called, um, so that, that what's called the scholastic tradition, these are monks working in monasteries, 
who are really thinking hard about the nitty gritty of everyday life. Uh, and they're so they're the original economists, if you like. Um, and so monks are thinking about things like property. What is property for? What? How should we think about property? What's its purpose? And therefore, how do how does its purpose relate to the laws we set up around uh, property, about how it's bought and sold? Uh, you know that constrain uh, property uh, to keep it within its purpose. Uh, it meant that they thought about um, market transactions, about how the buying, um, buying and selling of stuff, uh, and so one of the, the so right at the the heart of the medieval idea of how the market and commerce should behave was the idea of just price, that every transaction should reflect a price uh, that includes that that meets the requirements of the needs of the person who's selling. So uh, so if someone is selling you their harvest, uh, then what you pay for it should at least uh, remunerate them well enough to live on and repay them for the work that they've done on uh, that, as well as a, a little bit of surplus, uh, but not so much. You shouldn't sell your, be able to sell it for such a price that you're forcing other people to face hardship to to buy what you have to sell. So mm. there's an idea of a just, between buyer and seller, there's a just price. Um, and so they did a lot of really technical work uh, trying to, uh, that changed over time as to how do you arrive at that. Um, they thought, did a lot of thinking about the credit and interest. And so that what's, they had the long standing what's known as the prohibition of usury against usury, which is, Essentially, a, a, a law against charging interest, um, except um, which sounds astounding yeah, to it's us. It's pretty hard to fathom, really. Yeah, the first fifteen hundred years of Christianity, uh, every virtually everyone was in agreement around, at some level, around the um, the immorality of charging interest in particular contexts, particularly when it was loans for consumption needs. So, if you're having to to get a loan. Uh, to buy food or to pay for housing or something like that, then um, uh, then everyone was in agreement that charging interest in that context was immoral. Uh, it got more complex when you thought about loans in commercial life, uh, and they did a lot of um, quite technical thinking about that that stuff. But um, but it does kind of show you that like the the what we call the law of supply and demand gets a bit more complexified. In that context, you can't just be like, oh, sorry, well, that's business, you know. Everybody wants bread, so I can charge heaps for bread, even though people don't just want bread, they need bread. All that sort of stuff becomes very different to how we think about it. Yeah, and it wasn't like they didn't understand supply and demand. They actually did understand uh, that if supply is short, then prices go up. Uh, so what they were trying to do was to place some sort of moral and legal framework that didn't ignore that, that 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 the laws of supply and demand work in markets but try to place some sorts of constraints and limits upon their its their operation mm. and there's of course stuff that it feeds into this broader vision of life that's not even legislatable so it's no secret that hospitals began uh, around the time of the christian era in europe and that attitudes towards charity were changing even before um sort of constantine sort of times and so, yeah, hopefully we're beginning to get this picture that Christendom or what we're calling Christendom 
was a quite remarkable period where they were trying to do a very different thing to what I think we're used to today. And it's very hard to get your head around it. What we're more used to sort of started to come in around mid last millennium, would you say, John? Uh, yeah, so we're talking about the the, uh, the the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which began Martin Luther uh, nails his thesis theses to the door in um, Wittenberg in what is it fifteen eighteen or fifteen nineteen? I don't um, know. I'm a Bible college student, but I can't tell you. Uh, yeah, so so the uh, early fifteen hundreds, the Protestant Reformation begins, and that is really the beginning. I mean the beginning of the end of Christendom, and it's certainly the end of the Roman Catholic Church's singular uh, uh, authority over all powers in uh, political powers in Europe. Um, so, the, the, so the Reformation basically uh, destroys the idea that there's some authority that exists above all nations uh, and uh, leads to the what... Uh, is effectively the rise of our modern international system where nation states are sovereign. There's no power above of, above the nation state. And you mean um, human power, right? Like papal authority, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And well, a human power, but even so that there's, uh, so, I mean, what that effectively leads to is the denial of even divine power over nation states. It doesn't happen immediately like that. But so, I mean, if you think about now, uh, what comes in with modern social contract theory is that government is constituted not by divine authorization, but by the authorization of the people, the the, the social contract, mm. uh, and that is sovereign. It's the 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 will of the people, which is the final arbiter of 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 things in modern political theory. Um, and so what, what that does really is destroy the idea that the, the church is something which stands has an authority even if not necessarily a secular power at least has a moral authority above all of uh, above law and politics and economics that can speak into these things uh, and so the reformation uh, doesn't immediately happen like that but it is eventually the beginning of the end of the idea that the church can can speak into politics and and economics and uh, law and all of these things with the voice of authority. And it leads to the, um, over time, and this, you know, this takes place over a couple, few hundred years, really, of the retreat of Christianity into this private religious individualism, if you like, you know, that, so where the, uh, where faith takes place is in my mind and in my heart, and it's between me and God, you know. Mm, which certainly wasn't Martin Luther and John Calvin and all the rest of them's intention, but yeah, it's a Certainly inheritance. wasn't. It's the, the you know, the, the, the law of unintended consequences. It's, um, anyway, it's the way things panned out. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And then from, you know, 16th, 17th centuries, we've still got a way to go until we get to modern Catholic social thought, but... That's really where we want to spend a bit of our time now. How do we go from that kind of Reformation, Renaissance, mid-millennium, last millennium shift to that sort of 18th century, 19th century stuff that we now call Catholic social thought? So we can we can date modern social Catholic thought very precisely. It really begins uh, with in uh, 1891 with uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth when he launches. Uh, 
um, what's called a papal encyclical, if you're not Catholic, um, a papal encyclical is basically this uh, large declaration. It's a document that the uh, popes have uh, released from time to time, which basically declare their thoughts and theology on a, on a particular subject or a range of subjects. And is it so right that these are addressed to all human beings on earth? That is correct. And it, so it still reflects this idea of um, the Roman Catholic Church and it's, you know, as the, um, the primary mediating authority between humanity and God. So that still has, we can uh, talk about some of the flaws in Catholic social teaching later, but so it's... A, but it's also one of its strengths is it continues to address itself to everyone and to, to big picture stuff. Yeah, and it makes you very bold. Like the fact that the, the Pope is like, all right, I'm going to write a letter to every person on earth because that's the people <laughs> in my charge. Uh, it is bold. Um, so in 1891, Pope Leo XIII writes uh, a papal encyclical uh, called Rerum Novarum. And it's sometimes in English called the, the encyclical On the Workers. And that really comes into a context. So 1891, just to put you in the picture, it's about 100 years after the French Revolution when really secular revolutionary ideas have been working their way through uh, European society and intellectual life. And we have uh, really this... Um, so the rising um, uh, capitalism in Europe and industrial society and the idea that uh, the... Uh, economic world uh, exists entirely separate from any religious dynamic and that people can make profit and treat workers how they like. So capitalism on one side. And then on the other side, the, the, the rise of revolutionary ideas amongst workers and other people um, about how they're going to overthrow capitalism or overthrow society, uh, uh, that the current form of society and institute and a new you know, it might be a workers' utopia or, or something like so. Mm, so we well, have about the, twenty years off the Russian Revolution. That's right. So Karl Marx has, has by this stage, has written. Uh, so we've had the the Communist Manifesto with Engels, and also written Das Kapital. Uh, we've have a rising the the the, um, the communist movement internationally, and so this is the the the. the Rerum Novarum is the Pope stepping back into, after a few year, hundred years of not really being uh, a, a, a main, a, a key voice in political life, stepping back into the fray and, and trying to chart a, a course between capitalism and socialism, a Christian third way, if you like. That's how it's often talk, talked about as a um, that's where where the idea of the, a third way comes from, essentially. Mm. So, what characterizes the third way? Why do we need a third way between those two things? So, uh, so right at the heart is of um, the idea of the of rerum novarum, and this goes on through all, through modern Catholic social teaching, is that both uh, capitalism, as it's been framed, uh, the, the the system that is capitalism. And many of the forms of socialism, and usually when they're talking about socialism, they really mean Marxism. Um, we probably need to do a podcast on socialism itself because there's actually a lot more diverse range of meanings than that. But they usually mean Marxism when they say socialism, uh, which is or Marxist communism. Uh, so they, they say both of these things are essentially uh, uh, 
pictures of humanity that destroy what's human in us uh, and they both deny God uh, and they're they're no good for us for our societies and they're no good for us as people and we need a much more humane way of thinking about society economics and politics and what one way of thinking about what Catholic social teaching is doing is actually bringing back in a what you might call a Christian humanism uh, so trying to think about uh, again what is a human being and how uh, what is good for us uh, in uh, as humans in our broader context in in society and politics in um, art and culture uh, yeah so so that's what it's trying to do mm. and what does that actually mean that it does what does it look like on the ground what, what does it look like it so right um I guess uh, it's there there are some key things that um, that Rerum Novarum does it, it is uh, so one it wants to challenge uh, ideas uh, the cent really the accumulation of power to both states the governments and also the accumulation of power to markets so what's what we see happening in society is in uh, governments becoming becoming increase increasingly powerful over people's lives but also markets becoming increasingly power over people's lives and saying actually we need other forms of dispersed power through society what they call uh, intermediary society um, so rather than pe our lives being ruled either by government or by the market uh, what makes a healthy society and really the, the Pope is harking back to thinking about medieval society in this yeah, that idea of purpose what are we actually aiming at yeah but also they're thinking about the structure of medieval society is that a society is more healthy when it's made up of uh, of any number of diverse associations that sit in between governments and the market so in medieval society uh, you know that that involved particularly things like uh, guilds, craft guilds, um, and associations between, uh, so consumer associations, producer asso associations. In modern times, we might think of uh, different civic groups, um, uh, groups that get together for social, you know, the advancement of their local area, or trade unions, or even sports clubs, or even uh, the the libraries and uh, associations, things like that. But basically. Um, where people get together to advance the common good where they are, uh, they're enacting a sort of intermediary politics. They're, they're not acting as the government, uh, but they're also acting uh, collectively, not as just individuals in the market. So, uh, and what they're, they're trying to re, um, uh, I guess, renew is an idea of society needing these forms of association to make us healthy uh, and to take uh, some of the power away from governments and to take some of the power away from markets and to spread power uh, more evenly through society. So does that mean that the associations, the guilds, uh, they were dying off in that period? Like why, why do we need to reinvigorate that idea? Oh yeah, absolutely. So guilds are long dead right. uh, by this stage. Um, so what is rising is uh, what one is starting to take place again in the 19th century is the rise of trade unionism. So I guess this is in in place of guilds because now now this is industrial society. So you have employ they have employers and workers. Um, yeah, and so 
and one of what a big part of what uh, Rerum Novarum does, uh, because at this up until this point, a lot of Christians hadn't uh, had been very wary of trade unions because I'd seen them as a bit threatening to society. And what it does is, uh, on the one hand, uh, want to restrain the inclination towards revolutionary politics like Marxism, but on the other hand, to say a big yes. It is good for workers to associate together and work together for the betterment of their rights. And that is well and good and proper, and we should support it mm. uh, within limits. You know, there's there's certain things that trade unions shouldn't do, and it tries to put moral frameworks around um, how workers associate and how they try and uh, pursue their rights. But it certainly is a, uh, gives a strong affirmation to the rights of, of um, workers to do so. And that wasn't the case beforehand. People were no, wary so the, of it. So up until this stage, a lot of, and particularly the Catholic Church, but other ch uh, Christian groups have largely been associated with elites, really. Right. Uh, and, and a lot of the uh, history between, I mean, uh, the Reformation and even back into medieval ages, in, in times when when the church has favoured the interests of elites who, you know, that had close connections. Uh, so this is really a, a, a movement, uh, quite a a, um, a big move, and uh, which really defines modern Catholic social teaching as a as a new beginning for for Catholic social thought. Mm -hmm. So it kind of just gives the the green light to a lot of stuff that wasn't really going on, wasn't was a bit suspicious beforehand. Yeah, and places it within a Christian frame. It does. It's not just a green light because there's also amber lights and red lights mm, there mm. as well. To continue that metaphor, it's really to to give it a moral frame, uh, and uh, and certainly not. Uh, so it's to oppose. They want to oppose the idea of say in of that the goal of trade unions should be to start, um, create the the dictatorship of the proletariat, <laughs> which is in Marxism, uh, and say, actually, no, that's not the goal. What we want is um, a social commonwealth again. We want to move back to the idea in which different groups work together and uh, and trade unions need to be part. To have a healthy society, we need workers to have their forms of association in which their life and interests can be represented and not just the interests of employers mm. and those who, who own capital. Workers of the world unite, but in small groups relevant to your context and industry. Yeah, um, you know, they, um, they weren't necessarily against larger trade unions. That gets complex, but yeah. Um, yeah. Look, probably the other other really key area where they where that has a lot to say is in the realm of property rights. Um, so that's another key. Um, so what you see happening in under industrial capitalism is, and what Marx was so critical, was the concentration of ownership in the hands of very few people. So the means of production, as Marx famously, famously said, um, that's uh, was once you have factories, is uh, owned by very few people, owning very large um, concerns of, of capital and property. Mm -hmm. And workers, all they have is their wages. They don't own any property. Uh, and that makes them slaves at the, uh, at the under the control of um, of masters. So uh, so and then within Marxism, you know, the the uh, the move towards communism was to take uh, property off uh, individuals and particularly off capitalists and to concentrate it in the hands of the state. Mm. And so the Catholic Third Way was to say no. 
both these visions of, of property are wrong. They don't understand that the meaning and purpose of property. And actually what we want is not the concentration of property uh, in the hands of a few individuals, the capitalist, neither do we want the concentration of property in the hands of the state, because the state is not very trustworthy either. Hmm. What we want is a wider dispersal of property rights as possible, because um, property is a form of power, right? And it's a form of independence in the world. And actually the, the social vision uh, that they're promoting is every human being having an a dignified and adequate measure of independence, which is the groundwork for interdependence. Mm. Uh, and to that, they, for, for that purpose, they need to be small owners. So it's a vision of small ownership um, rather than con uh, large scale concentrated ownership. So how do you go from this situation where you've got immense factories that are employing hundreds, maybe thousands of people who only have their wages how do you go from that dynamic without it being a revolution where there's now no property and the workers of the world rise up against the capitalist masters and throw off their chains? What's that's what, a, how, do you, how do you do it in between those two poles? That is a very good question. And that was the question. And it wasn't necessarily. Um, so uh, I, that was, I think, where they probably things got controversial and got, got a bit stuck. Mm. Look, how did they think about it? At its worst, they didn't think about it very well um, in Catholic social teaching, which sort of just stood as this vision. Um, some people tried to think hard about that. It, it tended to lead to people moving towards experimenting with cooperatives. Um, so starting uh, cooperative ownership of uh, the means of production. So uh, whether that be industrial concerns or cooperative ag agriculture, uh, and so cooperatives is where uh, the workers pool their resources and be combined, become combined owners. So they own the company where the workers own the company instead of a single owner then employing workers. Uh, and that had some successes, but also a lot of failures uh, and they're up against it uh, really in terms of competing against uh, really capitalist uh, companies. Um, I think the better some of the better thinking around how to get there happened amongst the Christian socialists. So we won't go there. Um, uh, we'll wait, save that for another podcast. But um, look, at, at I think that probably the key element to take from it, and which has been visionary and, and contributed to the a lot of people, is this view of property, and it, it will really got captured in um, best sort of the visionary side of it, not necessarily the practical side of it by um, so the Catholic thinkers Hilaire Belloc and G.K. Chesterton, who are writing in the early 20th century. Mm. And, and they, they came up with the, the term distributism. So instead of we don't want capitalism, we don't want socialism, we want distributism, uh, which is this idea of, of widely distributed own, uh, uh, property rights. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's what we should be aiming in society. And that vision, that basic vision, has actually influenced a lot of alternative economic thinking through the 20th century and even in, into the 21st century. So G.K. Chesterton was an economist. Uh, economist. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't go that far because he really, he, he, he was a great rhetorician. And, and he, I mean, it's, if you, you, look, if you get a chance to read any Chesterton, you have to, because he's such a fun read and he's a brilliant writer, but he, um, 
he confessed himself he really didn't understand much about economic life uh, and to really get a good nitty-gritty you have to turn elsewhere but he's great for big picture thinking and and just uh really upturning how you overturning how you think about things mm. um so if you want to get a good introduction to really how rigorous and creative catholic social thinking can be uh read some chesterton mm. any particular books oh yes um so I, I would go for in general uh, a, a catholic perspective of the world read orthodoxy um uh, and that's a great fun and really creative mm, piece that of is writing a good fun read that one uh, and in terms of the, you know, the ideas of distributism, um, uh, the out, an outline of sanity is um, <laughs> uh, something. So, and basically, you know, that's classic Chesney. He says, yeah, these, such these, a provocative title. Yeah, these capitalist and so and communist ideas are insane. Yeah, and what we need is some sanity again. Yeah, um, and yeah, so you can actually. Um, Pretty much most of his works, you can find it in a library, but you can also even just download it as a PDF somewhere mm. on, you know, on the interweb. Yeah. Were there any practical expressions? So that's theory. Were there any practical expressions that like really seems like they were going fairly well, had a lot to recommend them? Or is it all still just in that realm of experimentation? Uh, no, there were. Uh, and look, um, so a lot of people might have heard of the Catholic worker movement in New York um, and Dorothy Day. Um, I don't know. Have you heard of those guys, Jacob? Yeah, only a little bit. I've been meaning to read some Dorothy Day, but I haven't yet. So they really begin in the 1930s in New York. This is depression, the time, the time of the Great Depression, and so time of great political and economic turbulence. And uh, Dorothy Day converts to Catholicism from being a communist. Wow. Uh, and it's really Catholic social teaching that gets her there. Um, and so the, she, they're positioning the Catholic worker really just as, as I've said, between communists and capitalists and uh, trying to uh, agitate for the rights of workers, um, both practically, they're, they're providing soup kitchens and helping feed people in the really dark times of the Depression, um, but also they're uh, organizing and uh, politically and, and getting people talking politically in ways but uh, that present this uh, third way vision of social economic and political life. Mm, a very fiery writer, probably speaker as well. Like if you look up a, a profile on Wikiquote or something, you get some quite amazing lines. I recommend people get a, get a sense of her through that. Oh, Dorothy, you, look, I would highly recommend reading almost anything by Dorothy Day. She is a profound writer and she was, um, I think, a saint and she's probably will end up being canonized by the Catholic Church at some point, I imagine. Mm. Mm. Uh, I think there are moves to try to do that. Uh, really a inspiring uh, follower of Christ, um, her personal discipleship, but also her the depth of her thought is uh, really something. Uh, uh, so, yeah, mm. I'd highly recommend reading something by Dorothy Day. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it when I get around to it. But, I mean, that's America, and we've talked a little bit about Europe. We haven't really talked about Australia, even though I know Catholic social teaching and uh, the effect of CST was felt in Australia, but I don't know anything about it. Can you give us a summary very quickly of the way that CST has influenced Australian thinking and action? 
Oh, does it have to be quickly? <laughs> well, I think so for the purposes of this context. Because oh, it's actually quite exciting. Uh, and, and as you write, people know nothing about it. Uh, there's actually this remarkable period in history where Catholic, uh, what was called Catholic action, which was sort of like the activist arm of Catholic social teaching, had a quite a remarkable impact on Australian politics. Um, and what we're talking about here is the 1930s, 40s and 50s and into the 1960s. Um, so really, there's this period um, in uh, Australia where where Catholic thinkers are they're, they're tapping into this rise, the rising confidence and in, uh, inspiration of Catholic social thinking and Catholic social thought. And they're thinking, you know what? We have this uh, fantastic visions of, of society. We should be at the vanguard of those seeking to change uh, our nation. Uh, and they're getting involved in politics. Um, now, for the older listeners uh, listening to this, they will probably be aware of uh, the, the name of Bob Santa Maria and maybe have some picture of what the movements he was involved in. Does that name mean anything to you, Jacob? Nope. Uh, such a, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> such a shame. So Bob Santa Maria was one of the most controversial figures in Australian political life. Uh, and, and he was going right, he was still going right up into, into the 1980s and 90s. Um, my first memory of Bob Santa Maria was um, in the 80s, waiting to watch um, Disney on the commercial channel at, at like six o'clock in the evening. And, and every time, the 10 minutes before Disney was this old guy <laughs> rabbiting on about this really seemed incredibly boring stuff, mostly Cold War stuff. And it was Bob Santa Maria. There you go. Anyway, look, uh, Bob Santa Maria is most famous or most infamous really for um, splitting the Labor Party in the 1950s uh, through this secretive movement he used he led to basically fight the communists uh, in the Labor Party and in trade union movement. Right. That's a, a really long and complicated story. But actually, um, uh, that's I, I say that because that's how most people know of uh, Bob Santa Maria. And if they hear the term Catholic action, a lot of people think of, oh, that means these uh, Catholics fighting against communists. Mm. Um which is what it became known as, but actually that's not how it started. And what Catholic Action mostly started as in Australia was an anti-capitalist movement. Mm. And even Bob Santa Maria, when he started in the 1930s and 40s, that when they were thinking about Catholic Action, what was front in mind was trying to uh, basically replace capitalism in Australia with a better system, uh, with this Catholic third way vision. And it was this idea, essentially based on, on ideas of distributism, um, so they were thinking much more broadly than uh, Chesterton and Belloc's ideas. And actually, they probably were thinking a lot more um, technically and, and in much more concrete for uh, practical terms than those guys ever did. Uh, so they had a lot to say in the early years. So there was a, started a whole Catholic rural movement around. Uh, so what they saw very early on and which people, I, I think, alternative economic thinkers have only come to later in the 20, 20th century. What they saw early on is that the foundation of economic society is agriculture and the shape of your agriculture and rural society determines a lot about the rest of the shape of your economy. Uh, and yeah, we, so we don't really like thinking much about agriculture most of the time, I think, these days. 
Exactly. And they really saw the nexus, the nexus between food, economics and economic structures, how people live and ownership and independence and dependence and that sort of stuff, and ecology. So what, what we see in, the, in early Catholic social thought is beginning to think about soil, in so the relationship between economics and soil. Mm. Uh, which uh, they are way ahead of their time on. Mm. Uh, if you, if that, you said, what does the Catholic Church have to say about soil? I think most people would find that question pretty laughable. In fact, I think to this day, it's really the only serious Christian uh, thinking that's been done on the structure of rural society and economy in Australia. Mm. Amazing. Uh, and they thought hard about the structure of agriculture, that, so ownership, what size should farms be? be you know what sort of how how mechanized should they be and they basically they said a little bit of mechanisms okay but not too much because that leads into too much debt and too much debt leads into too much market dependence stuff a third like that. way you might say it was a third way and it's so it's we're seeing a lot of the their ideas about agriculture actually being people are coming to them again without knowing that they were the catholics thought of them ages ago mm. uh so uh secular uh visions of uh, regenerative agriculture coming to a lot of the same conclusions, mm. actually. Mm. And it seems like that economic overlapping with ecological vision has been taken up in more recent Catholic social thought, even from the, the, papal, the papal encyclicals. What's, what sort of sh shifted in Catholic social thought in the latter part of the 20th century, start of the 21st? Um, okay, so yeah, so let's bring it up to, our, to the 21st century. Um, Look, I don't know that you would say um, much has shifted. What you could would say is that over a hundred years and a bit more of Catholic social teaching, it's just developed. Mm. So there's been series of uh, papal encyclicals right through the 20th century and now, or oh, I think there's probably been what since in the new century, maybe three encyclicals. I'm, um, Something like I that. Know, Actually, no, there must be more than that. No, so I know of two. <laughs> uh, that I'm, there's two that I'm familiar with, um, and, but I think that there's almost certainly been others. Anyway, so it's really, it's just been the continual process of developing the, the, essentially the same core ideas, but applying them to the changing world and to new areas of life. Mm, well, we no longer talk about communism the same way these days than we did in the 40s or 50s. So, or yeah, for example, um, so in 2009, Pope Benedict, the I forget what his number was, they all had that, Pope Benedict anyway, uh, released encyclical Caritas uh, Verite. Um, and that was a, basically a, re, a response to the global financial crisis. So it's dealing with uh, glo finan global financialization and globalization. Mm. Uh, so it's applying a lot of the same thinking to the, these you know, areas of financial markets and and try, trying to address what's gone wrong there from a, both a moral and human perspective, but also beginning to think ecologically. So, uh, and then with Pope Francis, we see the same lines of thinking going along. So, cr strongly critiquing what we would call market economics—the idea that um, we can just let um, uh, think about economics and markets in value-free ways uh, there, that there's such thing as a value-free discipline of economics um, but actually we need to think about these things morally as well uh, and critiquing that obviously it's impact on 
global society and especially poor countries, but then increasingly with Pope Francis in Laudato Si, which he released in 2015, uh, its ecological dimensions of the global capitalist economy and having very strong things to say about the damage uh, that we're doing there. And so re really, um, you know, you could say that, uh, that the Catholic Church has maintained where most other Christian churches have been pretty timid in the realm of uh, speaking out in uh, on economic life. They've been consistently uh, critical of capitalism and its impact on the world, where uh, virtually all, most Protestant denominations have, have really um, missed the boat. Mm. Uh, so that's its great strength. And they've had, uh, you know, and they've continually updated their teaching to to reflect on the changing world situation through the 20th century and into the 21st century. Mm, but as you say, like the, the, the basis hasn't really shifted. It's just the application of those same principles has been given a, a new in a new context every time. That's right. And they develop and they do, they, you know, change here on the, on the little bits on the edges here or there with different popes. But it's, it's essentially the same large vision of, of humanity and life and God. Uh, and it's one we, we could talk about that they use the terms. Uh, so they've in the 20th century, they talked about things like integral humanity and integral politics. So trying to bring integrate things back together that have been spread apart. And in, uh, and in Laudato Si, they talk about integral ecology, relating ecology back to uh, human well-being and to politics and economics and all sorts of other things. Um, so it's a, about trying to uh, and integral visions of life, if you like, yeah. and the, the the meaning of things. Yeah, I think that's hugely important today. But I mean, with all these good things, just to finish, what do you think might be weaknesses of CST or some some things that could be developed further. Yeah. So I mean, as we've already intimated, I think there's been a gap in um, Catholic social teaching between the vision they're propounding, which is their great strength, and how do you get there? Social mm. change. Mm. You know, how do you work for social change? And particularly speaking, um, and as and that and perhaps that's a factor, as you said right at the beginning, they're talking to everybody, so it's almost too hard, <laughs> and that's maybe. <laughs> Perhaps that that's both its strength and its weakness because it's, it's sort of this vision that's held out there. But then um, if you're going to work for social change, you need to talk it to this group of people in this sort of context yeah. about how they can think about working for social change. And that's perhaps been a, a it's not a, so it's not as if they haven't done any thinking on that, but that's perhaps been a weakness. Hmm. Uh, other than that, um, so you know, for people, if you're going to come at reading a papal encyclical for the first time, um, people will find, I guess you might call some of the haughtiness of the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, even, even, I mean, I love it, but even the fact that they're all titled with the Latin titles is pretty off-putting for many people. Yeah, and they, you know, the the, the way that um, popes will speak about themselves in the third person. Yeah, or, the royal the, we the, kind the, of thing. The magisterium, yeah. and, you know, so I think that's, and that reflects still, you know, I, you know, it's the old, the classic Protestant critique of, um, of the Roman Catholic Church and its view of itself. Um, so that, you know, that I think there are some weaknesses there, but but there's also that lends it its strength too because mm. they mm. they feel they, 
uh, empowered to speak, uh, hold this social vision before the world. Yeah, it's not a it's uh, not a shrinking vision or a shrinking communication. It, it's, it's certainly not. And 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 perhaps the other weakness is not a teaching a weakness with the teaching itself, but sort of. Um, its place within Catholic culture. And um, so I talk about, I should talk about this carefully, but in my experience, and I've had a bit to do with and talked a lot with um, uh, Catholic folks and some good Catholic friends. And uh, so it, perhaps its weakness is that, there, is that you might find some people who get really gung-ho on Catholic social teaching, on, on the encyclicals uh, and become quite militant. And, but actually, really haven't read the Bible mm. and don't know much about uh, Jesus. And so it's it's integration with a sense of personal discipleship has often been a weakness. It's, it's not with the encyclicals themselves because I think they're, well, they're quite, very biblical. They often. are, and they're often very carefully framed and thought through theologically, very careful. Mm. But it has to do with how, I mean, the broader weaknesses of Catholic culture and um uh, disciple, think, how discipleship and and how, and uh, uh, familiarity with the Bible works in those cultures, and so yeah, it's a relationship to personal faith and discipleship, uh, and uh, and a relationship to Christ can can be weak for people trying to work out and follow the Catholic social vision. Hmm. It's not as if they can't integrate; they can integrate very well, but that's not something they've necess necessarily done very very well there, there perhaps might be a tendency toward parallel streams that could could flow together but don't always yes that's yeah. right yeah. yeah cool well just to finish if we're not catholic i mean you and i aren't catholic but we still think this is worth talking about or even if we are catholic uh what do you reckon are the main takeaways that we can think about more and try to apply more see more in the world appreciate in our history from catholic social teaching yeah. Uh, look, I think, um, you know, the, the very basic one is this line, I guess, that we're going to continue to push is that there are the, all these riches out there in the heritage of Christian thought that a lot of Christians don't know about and that it really, you know, are enriching to learn about. So there's that, that basic line. It is enriching to learn about other, this other stuff that comes from other traditions. Mm. Um, secondly, I think, the, I think the really think the big takeaways is the, the way that Catholic social teaching has consistently provided um, a bulwark against individualism of thought. Uh, so which is the, the great hole that a lot of Protestantism fell into. Its great trap uh, was once we, we, we latched onto the idea of every person before God, we stopped thinking about other people. <laughs> it was just me and God. Yeah. Um, you know, so there was a great truth, but as our... R.H. Tawney, one of my heroes, says sometimes the eye can be blinded by too much light. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, you know, so Catholic social teaching, they never fell into that hole. So they always thought about society. They always thought about the individual within a much larger context. So that's one of their great things. Um, and within that, they have thought about teleology or, or purpose, social purpose and, and the common good. This idea of thinking about uh, starting to think about society as a body uh, and something that could be a fellowship that works together. Um, 
yeah, so I think they're probably the, the, the big takeaways. Mm, rather than an economic survival of the fittest from the individual perspective. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, folks. I hope you've enjoyed that. I hope there's been something in that that's expanded your vision of economic life or economic thought or the Christian faith or any of this sort of stuff. We'll leave you with a quote from Laudato Si, that's encyclical by Pope Francis in 2015. And he uses the phrase integral ecology that John mentioned before. And he says, an integral ecology is made up of simple daily gestures, which break with the logic of violence, exploitation, and selfishness. He goes on to say, love, overflowing with small gestures of mutual care, is also civic and political. And it makes itself felt in every action that seeks to build a better world. Thanks, John. I really enjoyed that discussion. Um, for everybody else listening, if you enjoyed this discussion, why not send it to a friend? Also, if you review us on iTunes, that helps this podcast get noticed. Even if you don't use iTunes, that's a really good way to help us out. Leave a review. And in the meantime, if you want more good news economics, check out Manor Matters, the quarterly publication of Managum. That's available for free online uh, at managum.org.au. Our November edition just went out just over a month ago, so you can check that out if you haven't already. Finally, Managum is a ministry funded entirely by donations. If you'd like to support their work, that same website, managum.org.au, is the way to go. And thanks to everyone who already does so kindly support what we do. And thanks to you, Jacob. Ah, well, it's a pleasure to be here. I learned a lot from this discussion. Uh, I know one or two things about CST, but there's heaps in there that I didn't know. So I really enjoyed it. Looking forward to learning more and maybe some of those more podcasts that we keep mentioning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Catch you next time, folks. Bye. Bye.